everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. My guest for today's episode is Professor of Philosophy at Oregon State University, Dr. Stephanie Jenkins. You've probably heard of Dr. Jenkins. In 2014, she began teaching a course at Oregon State University titled Fish and Philosophy, where she melded classic teachings of philosophy with aspects of fish and the fish community. After the class was announced and began to be taught, it started to gain traction and a little bit of notice in the fish world. And eventually it gained so much popularity and enthusiasm that a full in-person conference on the topic was hosted at the university in May 2019. But before the course, before the conference, before everything, there was Dick's. Stephanie chose to discuss Fish's show on September 2nd, 2011 at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City, Colorado. Not only was this Fish's first show with the now legendary and traditional venue, but it was also the famed S show, where all 26 songs played that night began with the letter S, with the arguable exception of The Sloth, which maybe you could argue begins with a T, but that's for another podcast. Throughout this episode, Stephanie tells us about what it was like walking into Dick's for the first time with a blank slate of expectations, how creating a college course involving fish made her feel like a more complete educator, and she tells us about a spiritual experience that came through a 68-second sustained guitar note enslaved to the traffic light. So book your flight, avoid the prairie dogs, and make sure you know how you're getting back to your hotel after the show. We're going to join Dr. Stephanie Jenkins to take a look back at September 2nd, 2011 at Dick's Sporting Goods Park in Commerce City, Colorado. Thank you so much for joining us on Attendance Bias today. How are you? I am great, all things considered. Thanks for having me, Brian. Stephanie, I listened to some podcasts that you've appeared on in the past. My favorite being the Female Centrics podcast with Donnie B., you said that you got into fish around the summer of 1995 when someone lent you a live one. Is that your fish origin story? That was my first experience with fish, yes. I had been house-sitting on a horse farm in Maine in the summer of 1995, and uh, I remember very vividly kind of sitting on um, a trampoline, no less, <laughs> with a group of friends when we got the news on the radio that... Um, that Jerry Garcia had died. And so my, uh, my first kind of musical introduction to jam bands was through The Grateful Dead. And not too long after that, when I was starting my freshman year of high school and was practicing in our school jazz band, uh, a friend gave me a copy of a live one and that uh, it brought together my love for The Grateful Dead, my love for improvisational music and especially classic rock. And that was, uh, uh, yeah, my first introduction to fish. And what's funny is that bouncing around the room was actually played at a number of our high school dances. <laughs> I got into fish a year later in the summer of 1996, mm-hmm. although I had not been into the Grateful Dead previously. When I was at a summer camp in Massachusetts, they used to play sample in a jar at the dances. Sample in a jar at dances. But I couldn't really understand what was being said. So I made up my own version of sample in a jar in my head. Do you remember any of your made-up lyrics? I think it was a centerfold in a car. (laughs) Centerfold in a car. I think that's what I heard. Okay. So if Tom Marshall is ever listening, you did a better job. Uh, But how long were you into The Grateful Dead before you got a live one? 
I was 14, 15 years old, right? Yeah, so, me too, um, yeah. Yeah, it, it wasn't uh, a long time, but it was enough to uh, merge my interests in kind of the free-flowing improv of, of the jazz that I was play, playing with rock, and that was something that I didn't know was possible prior to getting introduced to, to um, that line of music. And were there any songs on a live one that really stuck with you? Slave to the Traffic Light and Harry Hood because of the the emotional depth of the peaks of those songs. Um, but then, of course, you can't go wrong with Tweezer. <laughs> right. That was the, the first Tweezer I ever heard. And I'm, I'm so grateful that that song has been brought into my life. Like There's many, many transformative jams <laughs> since that moment. So in the Venn diagram of Fish and Classic <laughs> Rock. What does that mean for me? Yeah. So uh, Zeppelin, Hendrix, and Pink Floyd are my go-tos for uh, classic rock. In fact, I, I uh, in my Meaning of Existence course, I teach uh, Dark Side of the Moon alongside the canonical figures in the history of philosophy. I live for the moments when Fish covers Hendrix, right? Bold is love and fire. Mm-hmm. And if you're at Jimmy's night uh, for the Baker's Dozen, the wind cries Mary too. Was it oh my goodness, or? yes. <laughs> That was uh, un- an unbelievable moment. I was actually a traffic light that turned blue tomorrow at a yeah. Halloween once. That's, that's so funny because my, and I've said this on the podcast many times, my favorite band ever before Fish was The Who. Along with The Who, yeah. And the ones okay. that, along with the bands that you said, of course, what I now call garden variety classic rock. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a stepping stone because fish isn't always easy to digest, especially if you're talking about Tweezer from a live one, for example. But they do share that DNA because the band, I think, grew up listening to a lot of the same stuff we're talking about. And so if you take a stepping stone from Hendrix and Pink Floyd and The Who and Led Zeppelin, fish is there, plus that jazz part that you were mentioning. Where does the jazz fit in in your musical building blocks so I played in a jazz band in high school uh, on percussion, uh, and that was what drew me into Fishman's playing. Right, is that he plays like a percussionist. A lot of a lot of rock drummers, it's, it's the focus is on um, the hard sound and playing a lot of beats. But for for Fishman, he really plays the range of the instrument, which is something that. Um, really drew me in, right? Listening to a live one was the first time that I heard some of the, um, the percussive styles that uh, we were learning in, um, in jazz band put on a rock kit. What song mm-hmm. about Fishman drew you in as a drummer? It really wasn't a single song. It was the technique, right? He's just such an original uh, drummer in he's in his own category for me right and i think for for a lot of fish fans too to dig a little bit deeper into your fish background when was your first show and what do you remember most from it so that is a a a kind of a really great memory to go back to right so my first show was february 24th 2003 at continental airlines arena but so there was a a king right yeah, that was the B.B. King show, which is the first thing that, that everybody remembers. And uh, I mean, I love B.B. Uh, King is such a standard blues guitar player. I never in my life thought that I was going to see him at a Fish show. Uh, but, you know, so the, the early days of my Fish listening comprised of, of CDs, albums, and then tapes that friends had given to me. So this was 
there was a, a period of time um, in which I was uninitiated in the world of live music. And what I remember is the intensity of the crowd. Uh, walking into the venue, just the sheer pure excitement that was palpable of, amongst every single individual in that room was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. Uh, and I really remember um, the chalk dust from that show. Uh, but the thing that has always stood out for me was uh, right those three songs with BB King. Like, every day I have the blues, uh, rock me baby, and the thrill is gone. Listening to this show, uh, I mean, I've been listening to a lot of fish, like m many of us. Um, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I've done all of the dinner and movies, all of the beacon jams. Uh, you know, this past Friday, I wasn't quite sure what to do with myself with, <laughs> without a beacon jam. And I sit down and listen to, to this show uh, again. And there were these moments of just uh, right, connectivity with the music and thinking back to what it's like to be in the venue that. Uh, really sat with me and made me just feel the, like kind of mourn the loss of live music in a way that uh, was different from the other moments that I've had um, throughout the course of the pandemic. Uh, I think it's because there are uh, some particularly energetic moments in this show that, you know, thinking back to my first Dix experience uh, have made me long for what it's like to be in a crowd full of strangers. I can't wait for a time when we can embrace it and not be anxious about it. And I think more than anything, these gifts that Fish has given us is allowed us to connect online. You know, if you've been on Twitter or the, the chats, you know, on any number of websites, it's really a beautiful thing that exists outside of that venue. But we're all still in the storage box jam. In 2014, you began teaching your first philosophy of fish course, or philosophy and fish. And you mentioned that your school director at OSU, Oregon State University, was very supportive of the class when you proposed it. Is that right? Yeah. So it has a kind of a longer trajectory in that my love for fish and philosophy actually kind of always ran parallel to one another. So around the same time that I was first getting into fish, uh, or, or at least you know, kind of fish recordings and albums, uh, I was, all, was also my first introduction to philosophy in high school. And so I had these kind of, you know, like parallel interests. This actually relates to my, my Dick's trajectory, which was that the uh, 2012 show was right before I started my first professional job here at Oregon State. And it was during the, the light jam, which is one, actually one of my favorite jams ever. During that jam, I, I had an epiphany, which was, if I can't be in my whole self in my professional life, right? If there's always this important piece of myself that I have to hide I don't think I'm going to be able to survive this profession. And so I went to my school director and said, hey, I really think that the way that I have been taught to teach this course is not giving my students what they need. They really need to have a, a transformative experience in the classroom and just teaching, walking them through the history of moral theory is not giving them lessons that they're going to take with them for the course of their life. And I actually went back 
got my students all together, took them outside and made them rip up the syllabus together. <laughs> and, Sounds very uh, therapeutic. And then, uh, well, this was something that I took away from Fish, which is that um, you need to have the, the, the embodied experience of something in order for that memory to stick with you. I actually wanted them to undergo that experience of physically kind of ripping it up, picking up the pieces, and then going back into the classroom and talking about how we were going to move forward. And so I just, like, you know, at a, at a dinner party with some colleagues, said, I always had this idea of what if I taught a class about fish and philosophy? I was expecting the immediate response to be, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's my next question, because mm-hmm. I think that fish, even now, even in 2020, with all they've accomplished, you know, they have nothing to prove professionally or musically, I still think most of the straight world, for lack of a better phrase, still sees them as, quote, that stoner band that my friend was into in college, you know, which is not deserved. I would expect someone who's in an academic setting, especially to say that's not appropriate for a school classroom setting. And that was the response that I was anticipating. It was why I had, excuse me, hidden my love of fish for so long. I went to my dean. Uh, which is the next kind of level in the academic hierarchy and uh, with a, a kind of a mock syllabus just just to make sure that everybody was really okay that I was going to do this. And uh, uh, it was my Dean, Dean Larry Rogers. And what he said was, this is a, a fantastic pilot for thinking about experiential and engaged learning with students. What if in addition to the class, you got a bus, put some students on it, and took them to some live shows. To literally get on the bus. Yeah, like literally. Yeah. Right, and that was, that was the first time that the, the concept of a field trip right, kind of became possible in my mind, and I was actually the one that said, yeah, no, I don't want to be responsible for college students at a fish, at a fish show. And I wanted to ask you about that. Do you have students who know like, not much about fish and they're, they're signing up to get like a credit requirement fulfilled or... I was thinking, is it the opposite way where you have a whole bunch of fish heads who don't know much about philosophy and they just, they see the word fish in the title of the course and go, oh man, I'll ace that one to use my generic <laughs> inaccurate voice. But I'm wondering, where is that balance? Um, the makeup of the class usually, so it's primarily um, kind of, you know, a population of students who I lovingly refer to as fish noobs. And um, <laughs> then there's, uh, will be a handful of students who might have a familial right relationship to the band and then every year there's been like one to three veteran fans uh who enroll um in eCampus specifically because they want to take this class and so uh these are kind of two of my main joys of of teaching the class which is that over the years um since 2014 that i have really really loved the experience of getting to every summer to introduce a new group of students right, who have never listened to Fish to my favorite band. It's, um, it's like getting a, a pair of, of, of new glasses and being able to get to put them on and it really gives me a newfound appreciation for all things Fish every time I get to teach it. And you mentioned a little bit ago a field trip yeah. right, that, that developed into, you know, since it's an e-learning class that a student could go to whatever show is geographically convenient for him or her. But when I listened to a previous podcast that you've been on, I think it's called the rock school. I'll double check that. 
you discussed in 2018 that you were preparing for, it didn't happen yet, as far as the recording went, a field trip to the gorge. Yeah. Did that happen? It did. And oh, wow, what a transformative experience for everybody involved. Um, I, so I took a group of about a, a half a dozen students, a mix of graduate and undergraduate students, uh, to the uh, Gorge Amphitheater. Uh, the class uh, rented a van and drove up together, camped on the, uh, in, in the camping grounds together, uh, went to the shows together, and uh, participated in a, um, uh, a, a, a mini academic conference that I organized that took place on the, uh, the concert ground. Uh, uh, well, in the camping uh, grounds, right? Yeah, the camping grounds, the um, Gorge, Gorge Fish Studies Colloquium, uh, which started as a collection of um, guest lectures that I was organizing for my students. And then what I realized is, well, let's just right, open it up to any fans who, who want to come and um, participate in an educational experience while they're at the concerts. And what was really amazing was that about a hundred people came. And if you think about all of the, the other things that you could be doing at a fish show, right? <laughs> On the grounds, uh, uh, going to, going swimming, ha just hanging out with your friends, um, uh, drinking beer, uh, sleeping in, <laughs> getting ready for the show. The just, right. The number of people who turned out, who engaged with academic content, uh, asked, uh, really thoughtful questions and then just added to my students' educational experience. It was, it was overwhelming for me as an educator. I have a couple of questions okay. in the philosophy realm, and I'm really going to test myself here because I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'd love okay. to bounce some ideas off you. You've described philosophy in previous interviews as the art of questioning and the ability to receive wisdom and values. You've also described it as a skill set for being human. The art of asking uh, critical questions and um, challenging received wisdom. And it made me think of questions that are directly asked in fish songs rather than questions that are derived from their music. Like not, not stuff that I ask myself after a fish show, but literal questions that appear in their lyrics. And so I'm wondering, if you always have your philosophy hat on for a song like Haley's Comet, where there are a bunch of questions and some of them are just goofball nonsense, you know, like, would you like to have your thick strawberry goo? But then there's something like, what is the central theme to this everlasting spoof? So when you think of fish and in terms of philosophy, are you able to kind of pick and choose when to take fish seriously in their lyrics? That's a really great question. Uh, so, I like to think of fish shows as great places to get some thinking done, right? I always bring a notebook with <laughs> <Touché>. me. Touche. <laughs> Dry ice factory, right? <laughs> so sometimes I get lost in my thoughts at the show, right? Like, you know, drawing connections between Slave to the Traffic Light and Foucault's Discipline and Punish, right? How am I going to write out this essay if I want to explain it to other fans? And then uh, the... It, and it, that problem intensified once I merged the projects together, right? Fish was no longer my, just my escape space. And it became a professional space. Right. It becomes work. Where, mm -hmm, where I might get, you know, like questions from, from fans specifically about philosophy or about my class while I'm, you know, at the concert and things along those lines. And um, what I found is that if I think about philosophy as, as another instrument, 
that it allows me to find a balance. That if I'm overly focusing on the ideas and it's drowning out the other instruments, it's time to turn it off. <laughs> um, but if I let the ideas flow um, and think about it as kind of like a mind map that's happening uh, over the course of the show, that it, it, it's the sweet spot balance that works really well for me. So to make things a little bit lighter, let's dive into, <laughs> into the tour from summer 2011 a little bit. And then let's talk about Dicks and the show that you chose for today. 2011 was a relatively light touring year for Fish. They just played 41 shows. And aside from the show on January 1st, which was technically part of the 2010 holiday run and the New Year's Eve run later in 2011, there was only this summer tour. There were no other yeah, shows. Most of the shows were in the summer. Yes. And I don't remember very much about Fish in the summer of 2011. At the time, I was engaged, I was preparing for a wedding. And so, for maybe the first time in my life, Fish took, I wouldn't even say a backseat, but in the middle row. <laughs> you know, it was a week before my wedding. I still went to Super Bowl. You know, I wasn't going to skip that. Uh, but I went to the shows. <laughs> I went to the shows with my then fiance and then wife in Bethel Woods at the beginning of the summer and then Super Bowl and then waited until the New Year's run. So maybe that's why I wasn't as involved with Fish that summer. But this was the first time that the band played Dicks. And including 2019, they've turned it into this end of the summer Labor Day weekend tradition. But at the time, I was, you know, I had no idea what was to come. I never heard of the place before. I never heard of Commerce City. You know, to me, there's Denver and then there's the rest of Colorado. <laughs> I've since expanded my uh, my knowledge, but at the time, I didn't really know. So, speaking to you, who attended this very first show ever at Dick's, what was it like walking into the stadium for the first time? Wow, I wish I had a time machine so that I could take you Don't back. We all. <laughs> So one of the th reasons why I'm really excited to talk to you about this particular show is because you've, you said you've never been to Dick's and I've been to all of them. It has come to be my favorite venue. So 2011, I was uh, working on my dissertation, living in New Jersey, kind of going through um, a difficult period. And, and like you said, I was, um, you know, for different reasons, not quite as connected to the, the fish world as I had been at other, other point in times. And uh, I, I went to Super Bowl and ha had a, a, an amazing time, met some great friends, really got connected to the parts of myself that felt alive, right, when I was at live music and I just decided that I had to go to the next show that I could possibly get to. And it ended up being um, this S show. Uh, I put my plans together kind of at the last minute and that really uh, shows you how the venue has changed over the years and that, the, I mean, the show was undersold in 2011. It was really easy to get tickets. It was really easy to find a hotel room. Uh, you can't do a last minute dicks <laughs> in the same way. No, you have to um, book it a year in advance now. Yeah, right. And and there's no guarantee that you're going to get tickets in the lottery. It's actually, uh, I mean, it's become a big production with my crew to yeah. get tickets to, to these shows, right? And as it is for anybody who wants to go. Uh, but. <sighs> I 
I decided that I just, it, it was almost like this pilgrimage for me. I had I'd never been to Denver. Um, and I quickly learned that Commerce City is not, not the same as Denver. It's a, you know, a suburb that's north of the city. So it's closer to the airport than the rest of Denver. Um, and it's kind of this residential industrial park area. It's a, it's mm-hmm. kind of a generic stadium. Uh, and it makes it, uh, easy to handle a large number of people because there are soccer fields and um, these kind of grassy areas. It's perfect for, for having the camping. Um, Dix has one of the best shakedowns around. And I remember very distinctly going up and parking myself on the grass at gate C <laughs> and uh, having this sense of just, it was a total blank slate, right? Not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing what the um, inside of the venue was going to look like, not having any sense that the set list, set list and antics were coming and also being there um, by myself. Um, you know, for most of the shows that I had gone to up at this point, I had either gone with friends or my partner at the time. Um, the, and this was the first time that I had traveled this far alone to go to a fish show. Any, anything was possible at this moment. And um, so the reason why I wanted to uh, pick this show for you. Right. I was going to ask, why do you have attendance <laughs> bias for this show? It's a, it's a great example, I think, of attendance bias, because I look back at this show as uh, one that was transformative for me, right? My life before the S show and my life after the, the S show were um, never the same. Um, and that's because I met some of my best friends at this venue. Uh, and that's why I always, when people ask me, should I go to a fish show alone? Absolutely, right? Because you might um, leave that show with a new best friend. The whole thing that I th- I got from listening to this show in preparation for this recording is you could feel the electricity right from the start. You know, for what you called it as a blank slate that no one knew what to expect and they opened with sample in a jar, that is, you know, the quintessential show opener. You can go to 100 shows and see sample 40 times <laughs> open a show. You know, nothing unusual about that. But the crowd really sounds psyched. They really do. There's a ferocious solo toward the end, and then they go into Sparkle, which is a great follow-up. It keeps the energy going. By the way, this was the only time this song was played that year in 2011, and I could almost hear people dancing. And they, <laughs> you know, you could hear it through the audience. And then they play Sloth, and I, I wrote down on my notes, what a killer set so far, energetic, fun with rarities, And I'm wondering at this point, just three songs in, did you or anyone around you catch on anything at all? Because to me, listening to it, I could find it very easy to just bypass the idea or not see any trends. I was just having fun listening. I almost forgot it was the S show. It's it's funny that you asked this about um, around the sloth, because that's when I think the the debates about what was happening with the set list started. And I totally dismissed it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think I was one of the last people at the show to realize what was happening. And that's because the sample and sparkle are kind of standard openers. I think you right. did a job describing that, that what separates this, this show out is the energy, right? That there's something about the flow and the intensity that gets created by the, the creative workarounds that the band has to come up with to fit these songs that wouldn't normally be placed together together, right? And sometimes it works in, for flow and 
sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I think the first set's a little bit disjointed and the second set is fantastic. And during fish shows, what I would call special shows, right, with a capital S, it's a mm-hmm. designation, not just a feeling, um, special shows like this one certainly is, They, you get a certain tip at a certain point to, oh, wait, maybe this is a special show. Like maybe I should just add my extra ears, my Yoda mm-hmm. ears on right now. And I would think that Sweet Virginia would be around where those ears would go on for me because I don't know, I'll, I'll look this up, but I don't think they've played it much more before then or much more after then. But this must have given the gag away, right? It was the fourth song in with an S that's a complete rarity. I mean, it's a, it's a rarity and it's, it's a gorgeous, just beautiful tune to sit back and soak up the crowd and look at the the beautiful scenery of the Colorado mountains in the background. Uh, it, I mean, it really was a special moment. And I mean, for me, I still was not yet <laughs> um, uh, a, a buyer into the set list annex theories, right? It's, it, 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 it felt like it could just be chalked up to a coincidence or the band wanting to give us something special because we were at a new venue. I think the first three I would call coincidence if I were there. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I, I can't speak for myself literally in the past, but if I were there, I would say Sample, Sparkle, Sloth. All right, that could be at any show. But Sweet Virginia, <laughs> it was, that's... It was this kind of hotel for me that made me... It was the first time in my mind that where I said, okay, so maybe... Maybe the theorists, right, they're, maybe they're onto something. Yeah, maybe there actually is a conspiracy developing right here. And then by <laughs> strange design stash and sneak and sally, it's, it had to be obvious, right? I, I don't want to make you keep explaining that you, you weren't buying into it. I'm just wondering <laughs> at what point did it, because I love these gags. And not only that, I called this show artistic a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you said the first set was a little disjointed. I didn't get that at all from the recording. To me, it just sounded so beautifully set up. That makes me really happy to hear. It's you know I think looking back to when I was when I was at the show uh, that it uh, it fit together pretty smoothly. But I know it, listening back over it a couple of times in preparation for this interview, it felt like there were some kind of energetic peaks and dips over the course of the set with um, you know like kind of sweet Virginia and um, and strange design. And Susskind Hotel also didn't get a very great response. It's only been played three times. So I have to imagine that was maybe a go to the bathroom and get a beer song. <laughs> I was really happy to hear it. And this was when, for me, uh, it started to... I wish that Fish kept playing this song. It's such, it has such an um, uh, unusual series of rhythms. And, it's a Mike uh, song, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> Mike Gordon song. Um, it highlights uh, kind of Fishman's innovative, innovative uses of drum fills really well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this was the first kind of song that got any kind kind of jam at the show.
loved that the tempo was a little bit faster than it was at, uh, at Super Bowl um, for this. And, um, and I didn't realize until I was going back over this um, to get ready to talk to you that I'm actually in the Susskind Hotel 100% Club. <laughs> wow, congratulations. <laughs> I don't know if that's the stat that I want, you know, like a, a badge. You get for. a badge, yeah. And Stash, I think, also had a nice mini jam. You know, it sounds like the vibe there was incredible. There's a part in about two minutes where it just, the crowd, you just hear it build and build and build. It's so rare that I feel that just from audio being separated from a show, not actually being at a show, but it leaps right through the recording. And there's a great peak at 10 minutes where it builds peaks, hold it up there, slow down again. Type one, let's really get the crowd sucked in. And they follow up with Sneak and Sally, which is always a crowd pleaser, right? Always a crowd pleaser. And um, the Sneaking Sally Sparks is actually one of the places that I marked out as being a highlight for me from the show. Uh, the Sneaking Sally has this really kind of energetic, powerful, bouncy energy to it. And about five minutes into it, Trey settles into this kind of repetitive groove. Um, that ha that's meditative for me. And then the other three members of the band just kind of fold around into it. It's, it has this really spatial feel, uh, feel to it to me. That, um, uh, and then, of course, it has this uh, really gorgeous transition into Sparks, right? And so it, it's the, the building up of the energy of, of the Sneaking Sally and then the meticulous segue combined with the surprise of getting sparks at a fish show. <laughs> and more than that, they nailed it. They really did. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, this, this was the song that shut down any kind of debate about what was happening with the set list. And then kind of all of the, the, the chatter in the crowd immediately transformed into speculation about, mm -hmm. is it just the first set or are they going to do it in the second set? And, and, if they do it in the second set, what do we have coming? And right, the wish list of all of the songs just started. And that's the best thing. Those are the best things about Fish that mm -hmm. it's never one layer. The joke is never obvious. So it's not just, okay, all the songs begin with us. Ha ha. That's like the first idea. Then it's, well, how deep into our catalog are we going to go? Are we going to play any new songs we haven't? Are we going to play a song we haven't played since the 80s? Are we going to play Sabotage for the <laughs> encore? You know, we'll get there. But, it's, and then, but then it becomes a game for the fans where it's, okay, now we know what's coming. Like you said, what's left? What was played? Does this song count? Does the sloth count? Because it counts, it starts with a T. You know, it's never just on the surface. I, mean, I think that's also part of what makes the setless antics so special is that it creates this uh, kind of central aspect around which fans can bond. And it really builds a, a kind of 
networked community, not just about being fans, but about the, the process of the unfolding of the gag and participating in it as it happens. Um, the other kind of comparable comparisons to this might be something like, you know, when you're going to a Halloween show and you're trying to guess what the album is going to be, right? Or you're going to a New Year's show and you're trying to guess what the gag is going to be. It's this kind of central uh, thread that ties everybody in the venue together, right? But with, with, an, with a show like this and it being, being a new level of, of playing with setless antics, it really just it made you feel connected to everybody around you in a way that is, is different from just a, a regular fish show. And to bring it all back up with Shine a Light, which is the second song off, um, why is it escape? Exile on Main Street. Exile on Main Street, yep. Right. And to close it all out with Split Open and Melt and Squirming Coil, what fun. It's, I mean, it's a really special show to get two Rolling Stone covers. Yeah. And not just in the same show, in the same set. And so I have to imagine, you said it wasn't sold out, right? There was a lot of space around? Yeah, there was a lot more, you had a lot more dancing room at the show than you do these days at Dick's. And talk about a connection, even though there aren't a lot of people there, you know, singing, you know, may the good Lord shine a light on every song you sing, your favorite tune. Like you must have really felt, everyone there must have really felt as part of a whole. Yeah, there there was a transcendent aspect to this show that, um, really for me came through in the second set, as I told you that um, part of the reason why I picked this show is because it, w- it was a kind of transformative one for me. And um, that was because I had this really uh, sacred experience in the second set uh, that I will never forget. And then in many ways I have been chasing ever since it happened. Uh, and uh, Shine a Light just kind of foreshadowed that for me. To start the second set of this show, though, to get back into the S's, they open with sand. And you want to talk about philosophical lyrics. This is, these are some of Tom Marshall's best. I love sand. It is such a great song uh, that you can't go wrong with. Uh, but the lyrics uh, are uh, very explicitly addressing right, the, the temporal quality of human existence. And I actually will sometimes use it, use it as a case study in my existentialism class with students. That so makes a lot of sense. Who aren't in my fish class will get, will get their first introduction to the band uh, through sand. Moving on to simple and steam. To me, steam was the emotional weight of this show. Mm-hmm. And I usually, I was slow coming around to steam. I didn't love it uh, when really? it was new. Really, when it was new, um, there was something a little angular about it. And there, a lot of Fish's music is angular, but for something, it didn't grab me right away. And there was just something about it. I never dug deep into it. I finally come, came around. But now when I listen back to it, this is only the fifth time it was played, ever. Yeah. Yeah, and, so it's still a really new song. Um, and they and own this it. Is a, this is a must-listen version. Of yes. Uh, but I do think it's really important that you pair it with the simple because the segue is, uh, it's gorgeous, right? And it really builds into the kind of the mystical quality of steam that you get at the show. Um, the, you know, the simple, like any simple, it has these beautiful kind of uh, profound moments, but there's this uh, section of it around six minutes and 30 seconds. Yeah, I wrote that down too, yeah. Yeah, when when Trey quiets down, I mean, just everybody quiets down and Trey starts into this 
repetitive melody that feels to me like it, maybe it's a tease that I'm missing, or maybe I've just listened to it so much that it's um, taken on a life of its own. Um, and you can hear kind of Fishman steadily driving things on his cymbals and keeping time throughout it. Yes. And then Mike just lets out this bass bomb. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Uh, the recording can't handle it when I listen to it. It rattles oh, my, my yeah. earphones. this simple uh, and then went back and re-listened to this just like in my house with the lights off raising my hands up into the air and just tried to imaginatively transport myself back into the venue because wow that energy is the antidote to the pandemic <laughs> it's right it's there's something about um it was just so centering and yeah, it is, especially at the end, like the last two or three minutes, like you were talking about the segue into Steam. And Steam is not very centering. It's pro it is profound in a different way. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it has this otherworldly quality to it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the tray, the tray solo is monstrous. It's the highlight, I think, of this Steam for me. Um, but I actually went back, you know, it has a number of, of peaks throughout that, that build throughout the jam. Um, but I actually think that you should go back and re-listen to it and focus just on page. Well, not you, just, uh, that's what I did, did myself. The, the royal I, you. I really focused on the tray slope solo, that there's some beautiful work happening, um, that, that, uh, that supports and, um, kind of complements the, the solo that I think I had missed in previous listenings that I really, really appreciated this time.
and that's what part of this, the mastery of this show is where you mentioned earlier that you thought some of the songs in the first set didn't really go well together, that they were, or you called it a little disjointed at least. Considering that the band obviously had to organize this, right? They weren't going to just go into divided sky, you know, even if it felt right, they couldn't, if they were going to stick to the gag, the way that these just fit together like Legos you know, they, they really do that. It's, it sounds so natural, but it's obviously constructed to some degree. And, and I think that, the second set is, it's it, like Legos. It's beautifully constructed. Uh, the, the songs flow in and out of one another beautifully and, uh, and really set them up for some memorable moments. Including the next song, which is Soul Shakedown Party, which is the most grounding of any of the songs, I think, in this set where it's like, all right, now we can just relax for a little bit because both Simple and Steam were very heady. Yeah. And Soul Shakedown Party is just a, you know, Bob Marley, move your shoulders, move your head, sing along. And it's a rarity for Come that. Come back to reality, matter. settle into the, to the dance party. Like right? The outside <laughs> dance, yeah. yeah. And then to move on to Seven Below, it was a pretty good segue. And I almost forgot about the S-gag while listening because the vibe of the show is that good. There feels to be like three different themes that develop over the course of this jam for me. One that kind of Patrick picks up on some uh, really productive energy around the three minute and 30 second mark. And then then there's a few minutes of of kind of focusing on, on what he's doing. seven minutes I just I I have that page is doing some really majestic playing um and that and then at the nine minute mark it takes on this just otherworldly quality that I I mean I don't know how you felt but I, I felt transported I called it controlled chaos. Controlled chaos. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, this is, this is the, uh, that moment of, of, of kind of otherworldly transportation. Like this is when I start anticipating like the, the band picking off into a tweezer or, or a piper. Right. And that's not going to happen. Not today. It, yeah. Right. So, so this is my, um, uh, my, my qualm with the seven below is I think that it should be on the jam charts, but also it is unfortunately gets, um, the, the type two jamming gets cut off by the Susie Greenberg. And Susie Greenberg, though, is a nice change of pace and vibe from a real, I called it, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you'll like this, a weirdo jam straight to party time. Like from the uh, <laughs> end of Seven Below is the weirdo jam straight to Susie Greenberg, a three chord rock song. I actually, I mean, it feels like a, 
a set closure almost. It right? does and very then, much. And then we get the rest of the S show. Right. Sense and Subtle Sounds, which was another killer segue, by the way. And uh, the, the transition into Slave is heavenly. Um, the, this series of three songs, um, Sense, Slave, and Silent in the Morning, I had a, a very profound um, kind of quasi-religious experience. At the Tell show. us about it. Um, it. I mean, it progressed over the course of the, the three songs. And so for me, they have to be played together. I don't ever separate them out. Uh, the Slave is an all-time highlight for me because it has a gorgeous jam, but it has this really intense... Um, 68 second sustain note. Oh, I called it the note at six at six minutes and yeah, 25 right, seconds. Yeah, the note. And um, this, um, the experience that I had at this show, right? I mean, I'm not, or at least up until this point, I was not a religious person, but I really felt like I was um, kind of, uh, I, I came into contact with or was, or was um, kind of called by some kind of divine power, right? Of, um, being launched out of the the meaninglessness of human existence and connected to this um, profound sense of belonging and um, being cared for by the universe that I have never experienced before. Right. So it it, took, it it played out over the course of these three songs, but it really intensified in um, the sustained note. I just, uh, I was so overwhelmed by the transcendent beauty and power of this that I just started crying in the middle of it, right? Like I just couldn't, uh, it was the only way that I could, I could, could um, in the moment pay homage to what was unfolding was um, to kind of let it all go. And um, in the segue into Silent in the Morning, right, it's the, um, at the time I thought it was the only performance in which there had been no horse because I wasn't aware of any previous recordings, but it turns out that they had done it a few other times. Um, uh, but it was still really special to have it placed out of context like that and in um, conjunction with the slave. Yeah, it is unexpected to have Silent in the Morning played without the horse. And yeah, you're right that they had done it before. They went back to the pairing of it in 2012 to 2013, but then in 2013, it almost became a trend. That they yeah, there was a series of about ten shows when yeah. uh, the horse uh, was just 
disappeared and he got silent in the morning at all sorts of contexts. <laughs> yeah, but for you in this place and this time, it must have felt divine because of how unexpected yeah. it was. It really did. And that's why um, the, the, the moving into sanity, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, this, this kind of moment of profound reflection of, okay, like everybody loses their mind um, once in a while. And, and maybe I did at this particular Just a couple times, and, right? <laughs> and here's the perfect meditative song for me to think through what just happened. Yeah. And they closed it with Sweet Adeline, which I thought it was very funny that they used to play this or sing it in their early 90s when they were playing very small clubs. And now they're in one of the largest venues they've ever played. At yeah. this, and they're doing it again. You know, there is no place and time for fish. They just are. I mean, a acapella fish is always very special. And it really did just feel like a fitting close to, a, you know, a, a, a gorgeous set. Well, we're not a gorgeous set, yes, but we're not done with the show yet because they go off, they come <laughs> back on. And people must have been racking their brains to be like, what else hasn't been played? So what's really funny is that um, down on the floor at least amongst the people that I was with, there was this one guy who from the start of the set break said, you guys, they're going to play Sabotage and it's going to be the encore. And everybody was, you know, like, no way, right? No way. They're not going to play it. Right? That's just impossible. It's, it's too much of a rarity. <laughs> and so, right, so they, um, it, was, it was on the radar, but it was on the radar as the thing that wasn't going to get played, even when everybody was pulling out these um, kind of off-the-wall um, wishlist songs. And then they did it. <laughs> so that, like, everybody was high-fiving him the whole time and just jumping up and down. It was um, uh, uh, energy um, that I can only compare to hearing Isabella at the Baker's Dozen. Yeah, that was everybody something was else. Freaking out. Because <laughs> the, the impossible really did happen. That is um, the best description I think I could give to what it felt like leaving the show. And I said to myself, I mean, I, I made a promise to myself on the floor is I will never miss a show at this venue. And you and haven't. I'm just going to keep, I haven't. Um, and, you know, but at the time, we didn't know that it was going to be a tradition, right? And so the, the, the two traditions that were established at the show were um, the Setlist Antics, which continued for a number of years. But then um, the tying of Labor Day weekend to fish, right, at this particular venue. And so, I mean, there, there are other venues that have um, a special connection like that. You know, um, every year when we anticipate where the New Year's run is going to be, of course, right, Madison Square Garden is the, uh, you know, the front runner. Um, but it's not a given, right? You don't know where New Year's Eve is going to be. You don't know if and where the Halloween show is going to be. But over the years, what has happened is, is that I just kind of acclimate, like acclimated to the fact that I will be spending labor, like this entire week of my life in Denver. Right. Death, taxes, and dicks. <laughs> and so, you know, like there, there's a recurring, um, you know, even before the fish show gets announced, I just have this recurring, um, uh, calendar date in my phone that marks out the you know, kind of the week surrounding Labor Day weekend is that that's when that's when I go go to Denver to see fish um, to connect with friends who have become family and and the fact that it's um, it, it's it's its own holiday for me has become this kind of reflective time of of um, you know what what have I done over the course of the year how has my life changed how has my relationship to the band changed and 
the moment in the pandemic that when the reality of what was happening in the world really settled in was when was dicks got canceled. It was um, like, like pulling um, an existential rug out from underneath me. Yeah. Uh, right. And it feels weird to, to be complaining. Of, I mean, maybe not to fish fans to be complaining about the cancellation of the fish show in the context of everything else that is happening. But that was when kind of the reality of what was going on really settled in for me. And it, and it's part of why I wanted to pick uh you know, before I settled on this particular show, why I wanted to kind of honor the Dick's tradition in our conversations together is because um, kind of a way of maybe making up for the fact that we didn't get a, a Dick's run this year. I wasn't there, clearly, but I could tell just by the way that you're speaking of it, it was like like a film strip was going through your head with a great soundtrack, but, <laughs> but a film strip was going through your head as if you were seeing it in front of you as you were describing it. And it's That's like this the, montage of images that mm-hmm. I wish I could transport into the your brain and those of audience, your audience. Well, you've done your best. <laughs> you've done your best. Uh, but overall, I just want to say that this show, from an outsider looking in, it seems so much more about so much more than the music. It was about debuting in a big new venue and putting our stamp on it. I don't just say the band, but our as a collective. Uh, the music was very good with a number of highlights, but really it was about the gag and like you've said, and not in these words, but just kind of embracing each other and setting ourselves up for future success. Mm-hmm. I think quite a bit of future success at this venue. <laughs> I really but, hope that you get to ex- have the Dick's experience sometime in your future. Dr. Stephanie Jenkins, thank you so much, so much, so much for taking s- your time to not only talk about the show, but your career, your thoughts, sharing your um, your epiphanies with us, just saying it all. It's been such a joy and such a pleasure. Thank you so much for putting this podta- podcast together. I love that you have um, found a way to fill the absence of live music with uh, just this productive enjoyable way for us to come together and talk about and remember and um, pass along the tradition of live fish concert going. And that's it for today's conversation with Stephanie Jenkins about fish at Dick's in 2011. Throughout our conversation, we actually did not have too many facts that we got wrong or points of confusion, but there are just enough to warrant a fact check for today's episode. First, Stephanie says that she had an an epiphany for her philosophy and Fish college course during the version of Light that Fish played at Dick's on September 1st, 2012. That version of the song has since passed into legend as arguably the best version of the song performed to date, and certainly one of the better jams of the 3.0 era. Must listen stuff. In addition to the Female Centrics podcast, Stephanie appeared on a podcast called Rock School on July 29, 2018. That podcast is where she went into detail about her class field trip to the Gorge. It was a pretty fun podcast to listen to, although be aware if you listen to the show, the host is quite the noob. And when discussing the first set of today's show, I mentioned that I didn't know how frequently Sweet Virginia was played before or after it made an appearance at Dick's. According to Fish.net, the Rolling Stones song has appeared just five times in the band's history. 
It debuted on September 26, 1999 at the Uno Lakefront Arena in New Orleans, and it didn't come back until the Exile on Main Street set on Halloween 2009. At the time of this recording, it's been played just once more since this show at Dick's on June 24, 2012 at the Blossom Music Center near Cleveland. And that's it for today's episode of Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephanie Jenkins for a great chat, Fish.net for providing all the information we'll ever need, and Fish.in for such an incredible sounding recording of this show. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your podcast app of choice. Or you can just tell one person about the podcast. Call them, text them, tell them about it, whatever. Just spread the word. I'd be eternally grateful. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Bye.